The Mad Doctor of South Hill. That's what they called him. And it fit like a glove. The story of Rudolf Hahn is like an old black and white film noir from Orson Welles. A slow burn that reminds you none of us are getting out of this thing called life alive. It was 1924. The doctor was about as inconspicuous as a tarantula on a slice of angel food cake. And his wife, well, she had a great big dollar sign where most women have a heart. But like a tree falling in an empty forest, you can get away with just about anything when everyone's willing to look the other way. That's just what money does. It sweetens the world around you hiding the bitterness until it's too late. The mad doctor's wife swallowed her bitter pill in the form of a bullet. A fatal dose that cops say she delivered to herself. The Luger pistol still in her cold, dead hand. But what about all the other bullets that riddled the room where she took her final breath? This wasn't going to be an open and shut case. Not by a long shot. And the doc wasn't going to be much help. When the gumshoes showed up, he was high on the devil's drink, watching his racehorse graze on the front lawn, like there wasn't a dead woman lying in a pool of blood just upstairs. But I'm getting ahead of myself. To really understand this case, we need to go back to the scene of the crime and back in time, before television and radio before the world was introduced to the atomic bomb, back when a mysterious pandemic was striking down millions of people all over the world, back when they started wearing masks every time they left their homes, school and work canceled, even the churches were shut down. We see a lot of frustration, a lot of resistance. There are petitions circulating in the city about wanting to be allowed to have public gatherings again. In fact, they have a Board of Health meeting on December 6th, and it's absolutely raucous. I mean, there are people there, you know, hooting and hollering from the back of the meeting. I'm Kim Shepard with Carolyn Osorio, and this is the scene of the crime. Kim, there's... A lot to this story, and even though we're going back in time, I also feel like there are some eerie similarities in the pandemic that happened in 1918 and what's going on right now with coronavirus. And that's part of the reason why I, I wanted to bring this story this week is because it's not just about the mad doctor, Rudolf Hahn, but it's about this period in time when things are just a little crazy like they are right now. This period when people would do just about anything to find a sense of normalcy. A period when everyone's so hyper-focused on their own survival that people like Dr. Hahn could get away with murder. So let's go back to the beginning. And I think this story really starts back in 1916. This was two years after the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand and the beginning of World War I, a conflict that would see the deaths of 16 million people when soldiers from poor and working class families were being sent by the thousands to join the Allied forces overseas. Oh, back in Spokane, the heir to the Hecala silver mine fortune, Sarah Smith, married Ralston Jack Wilbur, a man 16 years her senior. 
She wasn't satisfied with the little cottage that Wilbur had built on the property he owned in Spokane's South Hill neighborhood. So she gave him carte blanche to spend her money and build her a mansion. And boy, did he deliver. This craftsman-style three-story home was built into a bluff just outside downtown Spokane. It had panoramic views of the city. Sitting on nearly four acres of land, the mansion had imported marble, gold leaf carvings, mahogany paneling with mother of pearl that had been shipped in all the way from China. No expense was spared. And before the last brick had been laid, the couple spent $75,000. That's about $2 million in today's money. This type of opulence, as far as Spokane is concerned, is just incredible. Was the wealth unheard of? Spokane was actually a growing metropolis at this point. There was over 100,000 people living there. They think uh, by about 1920, there might have been even 150,000 people living in Spokane. It was it was a pretty big center of commerce. There was a lot of mining that was happening outside of town. Like I said, she was the heir to a, a silver mine fortune. You know, it, it wasn't a small town. Spokane was a pretty big city by this point. And, and I just want to talk about the economics of this whole era for a minute. Right around the turn of the century, there was the progressive era when people were really speaking out about things like worker rights, immigrant rights. People are taking notice of the growing inequalities between classes, political corruption that's contributing to that. And I talked with Nancy Barstow, who's a history professor at the University of Puget Sound, about what was happening during this era of Spokane history. The two foundational pillars of American life, democracy and the free market, are being sort of constrained and contained by way of industrialization. So there's a real effort to sort of deal with that a little bit. And up through the war, there's a great deal of reform mobilization. So you have for the first time workmen's compensation laws passed, for instance. In urban centers, there will be more attention to helping immigrants find their way through settlement houses. You'll have the founding of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People and and the National Urban League. Two years after they'd said their vows, the mining heiress filed for divorce and the opulent mansion was sold to a local druggist. And then 1918, the flu, and the world held its breath. In late September, they have a state board of health meeting on September 28th, and they talk about the fact influenza must be coming because they've already seen what's been happening in the East. In fact, they're joking about, for once, the East has something that we can't get, but that we don't even want. But they actually admit that there's no question it's coming. Uh, And even the Chamber of Commerce, Commerce pledges that they'll support whatever the State Board of Health decides needs to be done. And very soon after, on October 8th, they decide that they have to close everything down. Theater schools, dance halls, Sunday schools, churches, they ban weddings and funerals. They require daily reports from physicians. They call for ventilation on streetcars, and they actually begin to enforce bans on public spitting, and they actually threaten to arrest anybody who's seen spitting. And very quickly, literally by the middle of October, healthcare in Spokane stretched to its limit. Because we're in the midst of a war, already a lot of doctors and nurses have left communities all over the country to serve in the armed forces. And so they're in Europe or they're in American training camps here in the state, but they're not available to the civilian population. So this is a little bit crazy because what we're dealing with right now is this flu pandemic. But they had not only the flu pandemic, they also had a world war happening at the same time. 
That's incredible. But the politics seem to be very similar. People fighting for human rights, equity, and it feels like what's going on today. It's scary. I mean, it it is scary. It is. It's it's incredible how closely this rela- and and you'll see as we continue the story, it continues to sound so similar. Kim, the way you are setting up this scene of the crime I don't know what's going to be more disturbing, the similarities in politics in these two pandemics, despite 100 years, and we're not even dealing with a world war, and your case involving Dr. Han. And that was one other thing that had to be canceled, send-off celebrations for young men heading off to war. The mayor of Spokane actually issued a statement saying that he would arrest anyone caught at a send-off celebration, no matter their rank or wealth status. Wow. So on October 16th, the city seizes the Lion Hotel to quarantine the sick and take care of people without access to medical care, like we're seeing right now in the Seattle area. They have a Kent motel that they took over to put people in. Nurses working 12 to 14 hour shifts constantly. They are completely stretched to their limits. And that's when they hit the first peak. On October 23rd, there were 300 new cases in Spokane in a single day. Wow. Just like we're expecting to see with the coronavirus, this flu of 1918 came in waves. By November, things looked like they might be calming down. The city of Spokane began to start opening a few things back up. Folks started venturing out a little bit. And then pretty quickly, they regretted it. There was a second peak in early December. And while the city never went into full quarantine, they never did a full stay at home like what we're seeing now, They put up placards on the doors of anybody who got sick so that visitors could be warned of what might be inside. And they also upped the ante on the closures as well. That's something that Bristow says did not sit well with folks. By the time we get to December, a lot of people are resisting this. Not unlike what we're beginning to see right now. So that, in fact, they have a Board of Health meeting on December 6th, and it's absolutely raucous. I mean, there are people there, you know, hooting and hollering from the back of the meeting. And they actually are able to have an effect on the kind of orders that come out of that public health meeting. And it's December where we see a lot of frustration, a lot of resistance. There are petitions circulating in the city about wanting to be allowed to have public gatherings again. It's one of those circumstances in which influenza comes in these kind of waves. And so you don't know when you're really going to be free and clear. And the hard part is convincing people when later waves come um, that they have to continue to adhere to the public health restrictions. And let's just throw one more thing into the mix here. In the middle of this epidemic and all this uncertainty, there is some good news. World War I comes to an end November 11th, 1918. Our boys are finally coming home. So you have a military that's demobilizing, families being reunited that have been separated in some cases for more than a year. You have people returning home from war who may have some disabilities, and you have 675,000 Americans who died. So you have a population that is in an unfamiliar kind of instability coming off of what was also a really unfamiliar moment in American life, the First World War. So there's a great desire among a lot of people, those who have not suffered, say, from the flu of 1918, 1919, who are really anxious to just have things go back to the way they were. Let's get back to normal. 
And that's really what this whole history lesson's about, that feeling of exhilaration that things might finally get back to normal. But that's being tempered by this epidemic that continues to kill people on a daily basis. Remember, we've got those public gatherings are still banned, so they're not supposed to be meeting soldiers with big welcome home parties. They're not supposed to be lining up at the port as the Navy carrier pulls in with their homesick sailors. All the frustration with all these restrictions is just growing and growing. It's like a volcano that's about to burst. And how is the news spreading and disseminating? Now that we have social media, it's it's almost like we're on overload on information and the latest updates. I mean, we're constantly down to the second. How did they manage and control a population as they are trying to do right now with the media? I did ask Professor Barstow about what their media looked like at the time and how did they disseminate information? And they did have daily newspapers, and they had several of them. In most towns the size of Spokane, you would have several daily newspapers that would come from different organizations. Some of them would be news media outlets, but like unions would have their own newspapers and just different, you know, NAACP might have a newspaper in that town. So different organizations would have their own publication. So there's actually a lot of information that was getting disseminated to the public, both local stories, but also national and international news. It was really interesting talking to Barso, like how much of a kind of a metropolis Spokane already was at this time. It was it was definitely sounds bigger than what I would have expected. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like people got the got the message like you've got to stay at home. But I mean, not graduating high school or going to graduation is a little bit different than seeing your you know loved one who was a soldier come back and wanting to be with them. I mean, that would be really hard to stay away. Right. It's all about perspective. Mm hmm. So by 1919, the flu is still hitting the world really hard, but not quite as hard as it had been. And by the roaring 20s, the wealthy in particular were ready to come roaring back to the life they knew before the epidemic, before the war, and before the reform era. They remembered the good old days of the Gilded Era, when showing off your wealth was a favorite pastime of the upper class. And the more outrageous you could be, the better. And Dr. Rudolf Hahn was about as outrageous as you could get from the minute he purchased that South Hill mansion with his very young, very attractive wife in 1924. He went nuts. He made what was already an opulent estate even more opulent, adding a swimming pool, ornate gardens and statues, walkways, massive rock sculptures. He created secret passageways and hidden spaces all throughout the house. There's something about Dr. Hahn that you need to know. He was not actually a licensed physician. Oh, great. He was trained as a barber. Isn't that where they had back in the day where there was you were both a doctor and a barber, you know, with the pole that had the color stripes of red and white, signifying that they cut hair and perform surgeries? That was like 100 years earlier than this. Okay. So by this time in history... There was the, you know, AMA existed. There was medical licensing that had to happen. You know, you had to have a state, uh, a license from the state in order to practice medicine. You had to go to a medical school. So what you're saying is Dr. Hahn was a great Gatsby character. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he calls himself a doctor because he completed a medical correspondence course. He learned how to provide electroshock therapy to his wealthy clients. He would treat everything from a basic upset stomach to cancer. He also reportedly performed secret abortions in the basement. As you can imagine, he was really well paid for all of this. Rumor has it that he buried a lot of his illegal earnings somewhere on the property. And up until present day, 
Treasure hunters will sometimes be found on this property looking for Really? You would think that he would be secretive with all of these illegal activities, but it was actually just the opposite. Like most of the wealthy folks in the 1920s, he wasn't ashamed of being rich. He was proud of it, and he flaunted his wealth. That was his favorite hobby. He owned racehorses, expensive cars, boats. He loved airplanes. In the book Washington Myths and Legends by author Lynn Bragg, she describes the raucous parties that he would throw. One time he got in one of his fancy cars and drove it straight into the swimming pool. At another party, infamous World War II pilot Jimmy Doolittle not only did flyovers, but he actually would dive his plane toward the mansion and would scare the bejesus out of all of the doctor's fancy guests. <laughs> did he have a practice or did he do his surgeries in the house? Did it all in the okay. house. And that's why he had all those secret passageways oh. and secret. Uh, yeah, he had a lot of nooks and crannies that he created. And he did a lot of the um, medical procedures in the basement. Oh, of the great. Home. With so many people coming and going from what was now becoming known as the Han Mansion, it was no secret of what was happening there. But the cops always looked the other way. The first time the mad doctor would ever be taken to court wasn't until 1929, and it was over a noise complaint. So oh. radios are starting to become more widely popular at this point. The doctor, though, was hard of hearing. So he built a radio tower in the middle of his property with these enormous speakers, and he could actually hear the music from anywhere on his four acres. Unfortunately, that meant his neighbors could hear it, too, <laughs> at all times of the day and night when he was partying. How was Dr. Hahn perceived in the community? You know, was he like the beloved wealthy patriarch who is a benefactor and hands out turkeys to the town on Thanksgiving? He is a pillar of the community. He is a doctor. He's well-respected. And as a matter of fact, I asked Professor Barstow about this. I was curious about where medical knowledge was at this point in history and also about what the feelings were about doctors themselves, how well-respected they were. And this is what she had to say. Medical knowledge was quite advanced. We had what's called the bacteriological revolution in the second half of the 19th century, where they were actually finally able to identify bacteria through a microscope. They finally have technology that's capable of seeing something that small. By the time the First World War begins, they, they know the causal agents for a lot of diseases from bubonic plague and typhoid to whooping cough and syphilis, dysentery and malaria. So there is a burgeoning sort of professionalism of the medical field itself. So by the time you get to 1920, there certainly is a sense that, well, in fact, the influenza that comes in 1918, they cannot see the virus, but they have a theory that it is something that's even smaller than a bacterium that they yet see. And they understand this is an airborne disease, a droplet spread disease, just as we understand of COVID-19. They understood that all in 1918. So medicine is well established. It's highly regarded in the community. Um, they are people who carry great respect in their communities, would be seen in most cases as highly educated because they would have gone to medical school. So they would be people with great status. So even though he never had his medical license, it's very likely that no one knew that. I'm sure they didn't because obviously he only got into trouble for the noise complaint. So far, that's the only thing he's okay, gotten in trouble all for. Right. They were able to get an injunction to get him to stop playing his loud music. Later that same year, he was back in court. He was actually charged with performing illegal abortions, but the jury decided there was insufficient evidence. So he was just let off. 
Now, interestingly, you won't find any of this information about illegal activity in the documentation from the National Register of Historic Places, even though they do go through biographies of the people who lived in the mansion. You also won't find a single line about the death of his pretty young bride. Really? Rudolph and Sylvia Hahn had a tumultuous marriage. They filed for divorce three separate occasions. According to Lynn Bragg's book, in 1932, Sylvia claimed to be the victim of frequent abuse. She told the court that Rudolph had threatened to run her through with a sword and even chased her around the house with a weapon. But after just a few months apart, the couple remarried. They apparently said keeping in touch by telephone was just getting too expensive. How did they get together? And you said she was 16 years younger than him. How old was he at this time when he was having these lavish parties? Actually, and... she was 24 years Whoa, younger than okay. him. Whoa, <laughs> okay. So 16 was the original owners who built okay, the house. Okay, okay. Sylvia was 24 years younger than Rudolph. Part of the reason why there's sort of this mystery around the Hahn mansion is because it wasn't just Rudolph Hahn and his wife that were a little bit abnormal. <laughs> Basically, you know, everybody who's lived at that home has had a really interesting life. So was she into these parties too, do you know? Or were they happy together? Was it, I mean, obviously they, there was turmoil, but they, if they divorced, got back together, divorced, got back three different times, there, there, there's some strong emotion there. Yeah, I think it was one of those like super strong love-hate relationships. I love you so much and I hate you so much and there's just so much emotion and they did not follow the laws of prohibition. There was always drinking happening at the Han Mansion. These lavish parties included lots of booze. So I think, you know, obviously that contributes to behavior that probably isn't very safe. When was prohibition? God, you have to let me, I can Google it. <laughs> because there's just a lot, there's a lot going on. There's a lot there, happening. You know, a lot of illegal stuff happening under the guise of like socially mobile people. So Prohibition was 1920 to 1933. Okay, so they're smack so in the, right at this they're time. smack in the middle of it. So just a few months after remarrying, the couple was back in court again. This time it was criminal court. The doctor had broken ribs and Sylvia admitted that she caused the injury. Both of them were charged with drunken disorderly conduct, but only Sylvia was found guilty. In 1934, the couple filed for divorce and then reconciled again. And then on May 2nd, 1940, we get to the scene of the crime. Cops called to the Hahn mansion about a woman found drenched in blood in an upstairs bedroom. Now, if you look at the city register of historic places in Spokane, you'll read that this was a suicide. That's what the coroner decided after doing a coroner's inquest. But let me tell you about the scene of the crime, and you can make your own conclusions. When the cops arrived, the racehorses were out grazing on the front lawn, as they often were, and the doctor was drunk. He told the cops that he had been outside on the front porch when he heard a single gunshot. He rushed inside, up the stairs, and found his wife lying in that pool of blood, a Luger pistol still clutched in her hand, and a bullet wound through her right ear. But that wasn't the only shot fired. There were bullet holes all over that room. In fact, the lock had been shot off the bedroom door. A coroner's inquest conducted ruled that death was a suicide. But Carolyn, what do you think? Well, first of all, you know, women rarely commit suicide by using a, a gun. 
The other thing is all of the other bullets, if she was going to do it, she wasn't going to, you know, shoot the lock off the door. She wasn't going to shoot multiple bullets all around the room. Like the more interesting question is, what did the doctor do to, to get the coroner to sign off on that? And in this time, in this period of time, again, back to uh, my conversation with the professor, she was explaining to me that there was a lot of cooperation between the upper class and police during this era. And it had to do with the battle between large companies and unions and just the politics and the economics of the time. The cops were often called to help wealthy business owners with their problems. So it's very possible that the mad doctor had some friends over at the police department who were willing to look the other way for him. And, you know, maybe for money, maybe just for favors. Who well, knows? and I think that it's yet another recurring theme with this story is that it's still like that today, right? I mean, if you've got enough to pay for a really great uh, attorney, chances are looking much better than if you're poor and, you know, in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah, it's we're certainly seeing the the class divisions, the economic divisions then that we're seeing now. And, and I don't know which is more extreme, what was happening then or what's happening now. I think that back then it was much more accepted to be, um, you know, super over the top and flaunt your wealth, which I don't think is as popular now. But I do think that the the upper upper class are even more upper upper class <laughs> now than oh, they were I know. then. So what was the media's response to this? Because we have the law enforcement, but hopefully the media probably gave him a hard time, I'm assuming. Well, he was in the newspaper when he would be in court. He was also in the newspaper when he would have parties. So it was almost like that love-hate relationship like he had with his wife. He probably also had with the media. So the mad doctor was eventually convicted of manslaughter years later, but not for his wife's death. The daughter of a wealthy farmer had bled to death after one of Han's illegal abortions. And while the doctor was found guilty, he was so old by this time that the judge decided any jail time would be like a death sentence, which he didn't think was appropriate for manslaughter. So he let Han off with a thousand dollar fine and a promise that he would never practice medicine again. And he still had no law or no medical degree. He never did. Never had a license, no nothing. So do we know what this guy's history was? I mean, it's just... There's so many questions, Kim, that I don't think we're going to find answers to. I guess maybe if you don't know those answers, what drew you to this particular story? Because I've just enjoyed it from beginning to end, watching your intro, your like, what, what drew you to this case? Well, I think, you know, with Scene of the Crime, one of the things that we like to do is talk about how where something happened, when something happened, affected the outcome of the crime or the investigation. And in this case, you can clearly see there was a murder that took place. I'm going to go out on a limb here and call it a murder, <laughs> even though the, <laughs> the coroner said it was a suicide. Let's just, you know, call it like yeah. it is. That, that the police looked the other way, the coroner looked the other way, that everybody looked the other way. Um, and it just tells you so much about what was happening in that time. People were so focused on their own problems. Remember, we've got the, the pandemic is still happening. We have soldiers who have or have not returned home to their families. A lot of them have been wounded or maybe didn't return at all. The country, the people who live in America right now are so focused on just finding stability and normalcy in their own lives that I just don't think that they really had the energy or the time or the, the desire to worry about what 
Dr. Hahn was doing over in his crazy mansion. Well, and there's a set of there's a double standard for the rich and for the for the poor. You know, there 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 always has been, and and hopefully, I mean, I don't want to sound like a downer, but I I don't want to say there always will be, but well, it reminds reminds you that history is like a pendulum. Mm-hmm. You know, you go so far one way that there's pushback. And then you go back the yes. other way, right? So we have, yes. you know, extreme closures. Yes. Everybody stay home. Nobody leave your houses. And it's like, whoa, wait a minute. That's way too much. And then everybody, you know, protests and gets angry. And then it's like, okay, okay, okay. Never mind, never mind. Everybody come out and do whatever the hell you want. Well, then, you know, we wind up having the roaring 20s where the wealthy are just going crazy and spending money and all this illegal activity, all these things are happening. And, you know, and then eventually we kind of swing back the other way again and and start becoming more conservative. And it's just, it's the same kind of pendulum back and forth that we see even in politics. I mean, you look at President Obama and, you know, all of his reforms that he made while he was in office, but there was a lot of pushback from the conservative side who didn't like all of these progressive changes that were happening. And so, you know, that we had this pushback. We went way far to the other side where we have super conservative Donald Trump now in the White House. And, and, and you know, who knows what's going to happen in the next election cycle. But I can only imagine we might swing back the other way. Well, it'll be I, I, I don't want to say it'll be interesting to see what happens because I feel like we're living it. And like those people who just wanted to get back to their lives and um, unfortunately, because of what was happening, it sounds like Dr. Han got away with murder. You don't have to be a forensic genius to yeah. to, to recognize <laughs> yeah. that that wasn't a suicide based on the uh, evidence that was left behind. So what was his legacy? Oh, you're going to okay, love yeah. this. <laughs> so as, as you could probably already tell, our story isn't quite oh. over yet. So he was told not to practice anymore. So guess what he did with that operating table and electroshock equipment that was in his basement? I, I don't even want to. I I feel like this is going down the Kellogg story. You know, like maybe there's going to be some diet plan that he like pawns off on people. What what did yeah. he do? No, he donated all of his equipment to Gonzaga University. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, Gonzaga is a prominent private Catholic university in Spokane. We were planning before COVID-19 to do an RV trip, a road trip to... Eastern Washington, Spokane area. And this would have been the place that we would have, I would have wanted to go see to see what this like. This is the story that I wanted to cover on our road trip to Spokane. So I'm, I'm doing it anyways. We, we may not be able to go to Spokane because of the stay at home order, but I can still do this story. So yeah. after he donated his equipment to Gonzaga, he decided he could no longer live in that South Hill mansion. He moved into a downtown Spokane hotel and it was there in his two story apartment that his son found him with a two-foot antique bayonet piercing his heart. There was a big diamond missing from Hans' tie pin. His wallet was left empty, and it sounds like this could have been a robbery gone wrong. In fact, there was an ex-con who later admitted to killing the doctor during a robbery. But again, with his history, this makes you wonder if there wasn't more to his death as well. Well, it sounds like karma to me, big time. Yeah, well, the fact that he was killed with an antique bayonet... I find it hard to believe that some ex-con who was going to commit a robbery grabbed an antique bayonet to do it with. Well, and think about all the illegal abortions he performed, including the prominent farmer whose daughter died under the care of Dr. Hahn. And isn't it just poetic justice that he was stabbed through the heart? Yeah, I thought you were going to say that he killed himself by putting it. I, I, that's where I thought you were going with this. Like, I am a terrible person. <laughs> I mean, maybe, but I don't know if I could put a, a two-foot bayonet through my own heart. That that sounds pretty rough. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, you know, and then what happened to the jewelry? Right. So who knows? It it sounds like he got what he deserved. So what is coming up in our next episode? In our next episode of Scene of the Crime, we'll take a look at the ongoing investigation into the murder of federal prosecutor Thomas C. Wales. Now, Wales was murdered in his Queen Anne home in 2001, but this is far from a cold case. Kim, the Department of Justice is still actively investigating and also still has that reward of a million dollars for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible for the murder. Law enforcement believes that Wales was taken out by a hitman, but why? Another great case, Carolyn. That should be really interesting. Just a quick reminder, if you're enjoying Scene of the Crime, share it with your friends. Share it with your family, anybody that you know that might enjoy true crime. You can find us at sceneofthecrimepodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all the social media channels. Uh, Please, again, feel free to share, subscribe to our podcast, and ask your friends to subscribe too. I'm Kim Shepard with Carolyn Osorio, and this is The Scene of the Crime.